You are listening to Friends of the Earth Europe's show at Real Radio. Welcome to Real World Radio Europe, a show bringing together what's going on in the over 30 national member groups of Friends of the Earth Europe. We're the European branch of the world's largest grassroots environmental and social justice network, Friends of the Earth International. Hi, I'm Antoine. And I'm Paul. And today we're talking about gas. But not just any old gas. The gas produced in Groningen. In the north of the Netherlands. And the gas produced in Groningen in the north of the Netherlands that leads to earthquakes and climate change. We sat down with Peter Kudder from Milieu Defensie, your Friends of the Earth Netherlands, who's an oil and gas expert, organiser and long-time activist in the region. But before we do that, Antoine's going to tell us a little bit more about the context in uh, Groningen, in the north of the Netherlands, and also about gas more generally. Yes, we did spend some time in, uh, in Groningen last year, the occasion of an important Friends of the Earth gathering, uh, where we discussed about uh, our fossil-free campaign. Uh, it was a great opportunity to, uh, to meet with uh, uh, local activists, but also with affected communities, which are directly affected by the, by, the, by, by the hundreds of earthquakes which have taken place since the middle of the 1980s due to the production of gas in that region. And Peter's going to touch on that a lot more in the interview that's coming up. But before we get to that, we're going to explore a little bit about the idea of gas as a fossil fuel. Now, when most people think about fossil fuels, normally they think of coal and oil. Gas seems to slip under the radar, but the truth is that gas is essentially just as bad. Well, the the energy industry is really facing some uh, some challenging times. They are they are getting more and more pressure to to phase out their their, their coal. Oil is more and more challenged as well. And, but they are really using the last card with gas that they are presenting as much as they can as a, as a clean fossil fuel, as if really one fossil fuel could be clean. And they're really like using all the power and their very deep pockets to, uh, to, um, to promote this energy as, as something clean. However, we are realize, realizing more and more, and it started particularly with the big controversy around shale gas uh, in the US, but which has spread all around the world, that actually gas is everything but, but clean. Uh, not only does it come with a, with a large range of environmental impacts due to water pollution, air contamination, and all the impacts that it then has on, that it, it can have afterwards on, uh, uh, on local populations. We do uh, realize more and more based on a countless number of scientific findings that the gas uh, between the moment when it's, it's extracted to the, and the moment when it's, it's consumed by people, that is a, there are considerable amounts of greenhouse gas emissions, which very strongly uh, and negatively impact on climate change. Now, you did some research into this last year, which told us some pretty interesting numbers, um, pretty frightening numbers, about how much longer we can keep burning gas for at the same rate in the EU. How long have we got? Well, long, sto long story short, uh, we do know from that gas study that we commissioned last year that uh, Europe today, if it continues to emit greenhouse gas emissions as it does, only have nine years of emissions before we have completely exhausted the carbon budget Europe has, which is compatible with a two degrees world. 
and if we could push on a magical button to switch all the coal and the oil that we consume and use gas instead, that would actually give to Europe only 12 years of, of emission at best. So this is at best only three more years than what we currently consume. So the idea of, a, of using gas for energy transition between now and, 19, and 2050 is actually pure science fiction and definitely not based on any scientific findings. Thanks, Antoine. We move now to the interview with Peter Kodde from Milieu Defensi, Frenzia, Netherlands. That's how, uh, how I always explain uh, who I am. I'm uh, both an, an activist, an organizer and an oil and gas nerd. I've been fascinated by oil and gas uh, industries for the last 10 years and uh, been involved in lots of campaigns around shale gas and gas drilling here in the Netherlands. And yeah, for, for Groningen, it's the biggest uh, gas field in Europe and it's been found in the 60s by um, Shell and Exxon. And basically since then, because it was so big, uh, they, they set up a consortium between Shell, Exxon and the Dutch uh, state. They're the three shareholders in this, uh, this gas field. But of course the state is also responsible for the infrastructure, uh, rules and regla- regulations. Um, they have to protect um, people against uh, big co- companies and they make uh, energy policy. So yeah, it's something that we call in Dutch het gasgebouw, uh, the gas building. It's the whole interwoven structure of different government bodies, not only the NAM, which is the, the consortium drilling there, but also uh, Gasterra, which is a trading company, is partly owned by um, uh, Shell, Exxon and the, the Dutch state. You basically can say there is no separation between gas and state in the Netherlands. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that paints quite a stark picture of the, I guess, the combined power of the private sector and the Dutch state. Yeah. Um, but can you tell us a bit about what the area around, and I'm going to try and pronounce this properly, Groningen? Groningen. Groningen, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, what's the area like? Yeah, Groningen is in the, in the north of the Netherlands. Um, it's a really rural area. It's, uh, it's uh, for Dutch context, it's a really low populated uh, area. But I think uh, most foreigners uh, would, would see that different because there are um, something like uh, 100,000 people living on top of that, uh, that gas field. And next to the gas field is Groningen City, uh, which is, I think, about 150,000 people. And um, it's really uh, rural, it's lots of farmlands, and it's also one of the, the poorest areas in the Netherlands. And uh, it has been having problems for decades, actually, um, with um, yeah, the, the typical rural uh, issues like depopulation, poverty, and not much going on there, and not much economic uh, activity. And yeah, and on top of that, since uh, 2013, the, uh, and there are more and more earthquakes caused by the gas field. So, can you tell us a bit about these earthquakes? I mean, how does drilling for gas directly lead to an earthquake? And were there any earthquakes in this area before? Um, no, uh, there were never any any earthquakes. Um, and basically because the, the gas field is so um, big, uh, it's about 30 by 30 uh, kilometers, and it's nearly uh, depleted. And now it's an enormous gas field, so the, the gas still in there is, is quite a lot. Um, but it has been producing since uh, early 70s. 
So there, there's also and there's already uh, uh, lots and lots of gas being uh, being pumped out. So, um, so the, the, there's a huge volume of gas being pumped out, and it uh, hasn't been replaced by anything. So basically, this uh, huge uh, uh, rock structure is slowly collapsing, and um, and that's causing lots of uh, earthquakes. And on top of that, the whole area is uh, slowly sinking. By um, at the end of the production time, it's, the estimate is the the center of the area will sink for a meter, and and that together is yeah slowly demolishing all the the buildings on top of that gas field. I mean, as I understand it, the earthquakes are not huge in magnitude; they can max around three or four. But mm-hmm. because the, the foundations are, you know, the buildings aren't equipped to cope with earthquakes, right? Yeah, but next to that, uh, I think we are, well, we are somewhere above uh, a thousand earthquakes now, and lots of them are actually quite, uh, quite small, around one, or maybe sometimes even even lower. So there's basically two things. Um, there's like this, it's this huge number of earthquakes. We are at the moment at more than a thousand, and, and any time uh, buildings there will just get this little shock, and uh, lots of shocks together will just slowly crumble down your whole building. Next to that, these earthquakes are happening on a real low depth, about three kilometers, and normally uh, an earthquake is happening about 20 kilometers deep. But if you're talking about the more heavier earthquakes in, on, on, a, on a low depth um, in an area that's full of uh, really wet clay, um, the Richter scale doesn't actually tell you something. Uh, so people there observed like gulfs uh, over the the, um, the landscape uh, there with the heavier earthquakes that just pick up your, your house and then drop it down again. So uh, if you want to translate that to uh, the Richter scale, um, that's much, much higher than that's what's actually measured. All right, and if you're, I mean, if you're a homeowner who owns a farmhouse, I mean, what's the procedure? I mean, presumably this is causing huge amounts of damage. Uh, does that get compensated, and who's responsible? Um, well, officially, it's all really simple. Uh, it's caused by the um, uh, the gas fields. So, who's responsible? That's Shell and Exxon because they do uh, gas production there, and you can just claim damage by the Shell, Exxon, and, uh, and Dutch state uh, entity that's set up to do that. Problem is, however, that they will start fighting back, and they have uh, all the expensive lawyers. Local homeowners don't. Um, they have a hard time to ac- even get any kind of funding for uh, for court cases, and for some reason, both Shell and Exxon and the Dutch state. Uh, helped to create to, uh, a, a sort of Kafkaesque uh, system of damage claiming where you basically have to go uh, to the oil company, say that you have damage, then they are going to decide if that's really the case, if that's really caused by uh, uh, gas production, and then they are going to decide uh, how much money do you get. And of course, well, estimates are that total damage could easily be somewhere above uh, $30 billion dollars. And of course, they, they are doing everything they can to yeah, not fully compensate. So that's been a, an, an enormous uphill battle for everybody who is trying to get his, uh, his damage uh, repaired. And if you have like 
um, light damage that's uh, relatively easy, uh, but some of these houses are actually falling apart and uh, have to be bought up and demolished. For those people, uh, and that's, that's running in the thousands now, yeah, that's been a really difficult and tough fight to get damage repaid and their house repaired and, and, and the ability to start a new life, because that's what you're talking about then. And I think a lot of the time we're talking about gas, we're talking about what the science tells us in relation to climate change, which is that we've got, what, three years more of burning gas at current levels before we blow up through our carbon budget in the EU? Yeah. Um, but we don't think so much about the, the physical impacts um, on the ground. And how's that kind of fed into the, the work that you're doing with Milieu, Milieu Defence and the organising and the campaigning you're doing there? Well, basically, one of the role, one of the things that we do is is try to help the people in Groningen to build up local gas resistance, and um, we do that really with a, a climate perspective and an energy perspective. And of course, for most people there, it's about the enormous damage being done in in Groningen, and that's partly always been attention, of course. Uh, because it's it's uh, a different focus, but I think attention we managed for attention for you and the organisation for us being environmental activists, mm. helping out people that are mainly focused on the the local impact of gas production in in Groningen. But I think we've found a balance where uh, we're now also there to just also to help out uh, Groningen and what's happening there. And uh, for most people in Groningen, it's it's really clear if you want to shut down the gas fields, something really has to change on our energy policy and we have to find alternatives for natural gas. Groningen is at the, at the sea, uh, it's a low-lying area, it's actually sinking, so um, uh, sea level rise is a real thing there. So I think through the years we've built up this common narrative of that it's, it's actually about both, about both local impacts and uh, the energy transition and climate. Mm. I mean, how was it uh, initially when you when you first moved to Groningen to start organising with people? I mean, did they view you as somebody from you know, a large environmental organisation coming in and uh, telling you how to do things? Is this the kind of dynamic that you have to try and avoid? Yeah, yeah. When when I first walked into Groningen and uh, and just knocked on some doors and said, well, uh, I, I know a lot of, about campaigning and I know a lot about oil and gas. I'm here to help. There's of course a, a lot of uh, mistrust because you're yeah. somewhere even big city um, from a large en- uh, environmental NGO. Uh, are you going to hijack our circle here or what's your agenda? Mm. Well, normal dynamic. But we took really the approach of just at first just prove that you can be of help and uh, not play out your own agenda. But f- um, and I think that builds a lot of, of the trust that we have now to really work together. In some way, the, the, um, the whole dynamic of what, hap- what is happening in, in Groningen uh, with the earthquakes really looks similar to what you see around, uh, what you will see around climate change in the, in the, in the coming decades. It's basically been uh, a problem that's been ignored for, for decades. At the time where um, we still could have done something to prevent it, and now it's causing a huge disruptive damage, and we've suddenly discovered that we're completely addicted to natural gas, and that it's impossible to immediately shut it down, because for for safety reasons, 
that's what we should be doing uh, tomorrow in Groningen. We should sh- just completely shut down the, the gas field. Um, but that would literally mean uh, lights will go out and people will freeze to death in a large chunk of northern, uh, northwestern Europe. Uh, because it's not only the Netherlands, it's also Germany and Belgium and, uh, and a part of France that's, uh, that's heating their house on, uh, on this gas. Then you have to, the, the, on one hand, the realization also in, in the Groningen area that you can't immediately shut it down, um, but also the realization and, and that's for, for safety reasons, that's actually what we should do now. So what's, I mean, what would a positive energy future for the Netherlands and Groningen look like? Well, the, 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 uh, most of the Keolic and the experts say that we have to bring it down to at least 12 billion uh, uh, cubic meters of gas production a year. And what's it at now? Um, it's now at 21 and it's coming from above 50 um, because we, we already uh, won uh, a couple of court cases and battles to, uh, to lower productions from almost 54 billion cubic meters it was at. And um, yet... To get back to 12, um, that's uh, after uh, another heavy earthquake uh, at the beginning of this year, um, the government is is finally going for that. It has been uh, fighting back uh, doing that because that was actually the advice already of the mining authorities in 2013. They already said we should go back to 12, that might be safe. They ignored that, they um, just lowered it a bit and a bit more and a bit more. But now they declared, okay, we're going back to 12. That's impossible to do in one year. Uh, That will take us several years. And there's lots of things that we should do for that. Basically, renovate and uh, reinstallate 7 million houses in the Netherlands and make them um, uh, run on sustainable heat. There, there are all kinds of ways to um, heat your house without gas, and it's, it's heat pumps and it's geothermal. And the basic thing is, you need to really insulate all those houses, and that means building activities in seven million houses, and that's going to be a huge undertaking. The other chunk is, of course, uh, electricity production, although Groningen gas isn't used that much for electricity. Um, but for that, we need uh, lots and lots more of, uh, of sustainable electricity. And the other uh, huge chunk is uh, big industries using uh, gas as, as a feedstock for fertilizers, for plastics, for all kinds of other stuff, or for, uh, for heating and uh, fueling uh, industrial processes that uh, need huge quantities. Of, of heat and also these companies have to um, basically our government had sent all the, the large factories uh, running on uh, Groningen gas a letter a month ago saying you have to get off Groningen gas as soon as possible and uh, I'm afraid that lots of these companies will uh, rebuild to Russian gas but also their um, uh, geothermal and electrification and um, an all scale of, uh, all, of alternatives possible but all of that will need uh, lots of money, lots of time, lots of energy and, um, and, and part of the technology isn't yet there to do that uh, full scale in the, in the time frame that Groningen and climate actually needs. Well, that's even if you consider the idea that we should be keeping pumping out plastics at the rate we are, which is another issue yeah. entirely. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's why, why I think you should really look in, do we have to... Um, 
take uh, gas demand as something as, uh, um, um, as, as like a natural given? Or should we say to some companies, sorry, we run out, we don't have it anymore, you have to shut down. Um, and, and for that, I've, I think we at the, the coming couple of years, um, not only here in the Netherlands, but uh, in all our surrounding countries, we have to make some really tough choices on um, on gas demand. And if we are going to uh, have the gas um, to uh, to supply for that. Quite nice to point on, actually. I mean, I don't know if there's anything else that you want to mention. Yeah, maybe a, a call out to all, of, yeah. all our friends in, in Germany, Belgium and France. You, you all been using Groningen gas as a uh, given for the last couple of years. And I know that in most of these countries, uh, the gas transition is still not really a, a hotly debated topic. But it's it is about time that we start um, discussing that and starting, uh, starting a move away from gas. And that uh, it's a task for the environmental movements to, to push that debate and maybe also a warning that one of the theories in Groningen is that all these small earthquakes happening now could build up to a really large one and that will um, will actually mean that uh, the, the gas field will automatically shut down and that will have a major impact on, uh, on um, energy security in, uh, in the rest of Europe and that's uh, something that can can happen tomorrow and we should be prepared for it and we're not at the moment. So we need to shut it down before it shuts itself down. Yeah. You are listening to Friends of the Earth Europe's show at Via World Radio. So the struggle in Groningen is fairly unique in Europe in that there's nowhere else really like it. There's no gas site that operates to that extent and so there's no opposition that exists to that extent. But the picture is changing as more and more gas infrastructure gets funded, signed off and commissioned to be built across Europe. Yeah, you're right, Paul. The way uh, people perceive gas is really, really changing more and more. Uh, And Groningen is really an an interesting example about that. What we see also now more and more is that a growing number of concerned citizens, local groups and organizations are now standing to fight against the construction of new gas infrastructure. So that's that's gas site productions, but that's also mega gas pipelines to import gas from other places in in, in the world. But that's also big liquefied natural gas terminals to import by ship some gas from other places in the world as well. People do realize that not only these facilities have a huge impact on the environment, but also heavily contributes to accelerate climate change. And, uh, and so that clearly indicates that the idea of gas being clean is really something that is, uh, that is changing in people's mind. And uh, this movement is really fast growing. Mm. Where, whereabouts is this happening? Is this located in a particular part of Europe? Or? There are many oppositions all over Europe. People are fighting uh, the construction of pipelines in France and Spain. There are, people are fighting the constructions of new LNG terminals in, uh, in Ireland, in Sweden, in Sweden as well. Uh, some people are, are fighting this uh, absurd mega pipeline project aiming at connecting Azerbaijan to, to Europe. And so people are mobilized in Italy, in Greece as well. So, uh, but these are just a handful of examples of, of these growing oppositions uh, that is really spreading all around the continent. Thanks for listening and keep up to date with our network's campaigns. And follow Friends of the Earth Europe on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website at www.foeeurope.org. Get involved with the Friends of the Earth group near you by going to foeeurope.org network. 
Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts. And follow radio stories from around the Friends of the Earth International Network at radiomundoreal.fm. Thanks to Pete the Temp for the music, and see you next time. Bye-bye! This was Friends of the Earth Europe and Rio Radio. Radio.